So first off, um, we're talking about prayer, and our lesson will be broken down into six points, which is really five points plus some resources. Uh, five points. Number one, what is prayer? Number two, how did they pray? Number three, how do we pray? Um, number four, hindrances to prayer. What things prevent us from praying? And then what are the effects or the results of prayer? That's number five. And then six are recommended resources at the end. So number one, let's consider prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is ultimately what faith looks like. It's the application of faith. It is faith worked out. It is um, the visibility of, of faith. It is trusting in God, relationship with God, talking to God. Um, there are many different types of prayer, and so we're going to speak about four of them here in this first section. Uh, and so we're going to talk first off about praise. Um, there are different acronyms that are used for prayer, and this is the acronym PRAY, P-R-A-Y. So P stands for praise, R stands for repentance, A stands for asking, and Y stands for yielding. This is, in my opinion, the easiest. By the way, if you want the notes and the PowerPoint and stuff, you can go on the app and select probably sermons, and then let me pull it up. Um, so we get home, then sermons, then Wednesday services, then basics for believers, then lesson three, prayer, and then notes. There we go. So that's how to find it if you're looking for it, um, if you're looking for the PowerPoint. Um, so as far as acronyms go, this PRAY acronym, P-R-A-Y, is the easiest one for obvious reasons to remember. Um, and so that's why we're starting out with it. But the first point, the first part of prayer to discuss is this, uh, this concept of praise. And it's important to ensure in our prayer that we are praying to the Christian God, the God of the Bible, because everybody prays, whether they're Christian or not. Everybody of, of all types of religions all around the world, they all have some sort of prayer practice of communicating with the gods or the spirits or angels or demons. And um, that's why it's so important to keep in mind who we are praying to so that we are not inadvertently communicating with demons or false gods. So we start off with praise. And what do we praise God for? Well, we praise God for his character. Who are we praying to? Well, we're praying to the God of the Bible, the Christian God, the God who is triune. So there are lots of attributes of God that could be listed here, but we've, uh, I've just listed 11. Um, the first, well, om omnipotence. Omnipotence is being all-powerful. Omnipresence is all-present. Omniscience is all-knowing. There are other omni-words, such as omni-benevolence and other words as well, but these are three of the most commonly known ones, the most commonly discussed. So God is all-powerful, he is all-present, and God is all-knowing. Beyond that, God is holy. Holy means he is distinct, he is unique, he is set apart, he is unlike anything else. Further, God is sovereign. He is in control over all things. That's why we pray to him because he can actually do something about the things that we are praying about. Further, God is 
all wise. He is not only sovereign and in control, but he is all-knowing and he has all wisdom. And so in his control over all things, he always does the right thing. He does what is best. God is righteous. There is no sin in him. He always does what is right. And the other side of righteousness is just, that God is just, and he exercises perfect justice. In the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, oftentimes the word righteousness or justice are used interchangeably. It's the word dikaios in, in Greek, the, the word righteous. And then justice is actually a, sometimes a different word, but they will use them interchangeably. So 1 John 1.9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, he is faithful and just, or he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. So the justice of God and the righteousness of God are two sides of the same coin. The way God forgives us while maintaining his justice, his righteousness, is through the person of Christ, through punishing God the Father, punishing God the Son in our place on the cross. And so he maintains perfect justice and perfect righteousness while giving us his justice and his righteousness. Um, beyond that, God is good. God is good. God also has wrath. I don't believe that the Bible states anywhere that God is wrath, but rather that God has wrath. There's a distinction there. And then God is merciful. This is one of the ways in which God describes himself to Moses, for example. Uh, when uh, Moses says, well, who am I going to say sent me? And then the Lord replies and says, well, it, I am. Well, who is I am? Well, I am uh, a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. So when we speak of prayer, we're praying to God and we are praising God. We start off first off by praising God for his character. And these are 11 attributes of God, 11 things that you can praise God for. You can say, God, thank you that you are all powerful. The world is not spinning out of control, even though it might feel like it's out of control. Even though there might be circumstances and events and things that are objectively bad, yet you are in control over all of those things. You are sovereign over all. God, I thank you and praise you that you are all present. You are with us in the fire. You are with us in times of great hardship. You have not left us. You will not abandon us. And that is true even if things don't go well. You are still with us. God is all present. God is all knowing. So what that means is when we come to him in prayer, we are not coming with surprise information. We're not bringing to him something that he doesn't know about and that we might spring this on him and he'll be surprised and then he'll be set off. He'll be um, angry with us because we, didn't, we, we told him something he, he was surprised by. That is not how God is. Beyond that, God is holy. God is unique. God is set apart. There is none like him. God is not vulgar or profane. God is not like the mythical gods of ancient Greece. Those gods are not holy and righteous. Further, God is sovereign. So that means when you come with your prayers, you can actually ask him to do things and he can do things. 
You can ask him to save someone and he can save someone. You can ask him to deliver you from a bad situation and he can do that. And he can do that either through means or he can just do it. He can do it through means you're not aware of. Means that are far too small for you to see. Means that are on a microscopic level God can do. God is sovereign, and so that should shape our prayers of praise. Further, God has all wisdom, so that should shape the way we pray to him as we open up his word, because we find his wisdom in the word of God. God is righteous. He is without sin. God is just. And so when we cry out to God, we can say, if we're feeling brave, we can ask for God to extend his justice. Now, the problem is we are not just. And so when we come before God saying, God, give me justice, usually that's not going to end super well for you. So be careful about that. Because we usually want selective justice. We want God to give the other person justice, but not us justice. But there are places in the Bible where you see inspired writers of scripture crying out to God for justice. And it does seem that that is pleasing to God. It does seem that God wants to avenge his people. He does want to avenge justice. Further, God is good. And because God is good, that shapes the way we should relate to him. That should shape the way we come to him in our prayers. We should come boldly before his throne because we trust that God is good and that God is wrathful. We can pray in certain kind of ways. When we see great evils being done, we can ask God, God, please judge the wicked. Cause them to turn. But if they do not turn, please avenge your justice and pour out your wrath on the wicked. We see those kinds of prayers in the Bible. And further, crying out to God for mercy. When you recognize, which the closer you are to God, the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you recognize your own sinfulness and your own need for mercy. And so you ask God, God, please be merciful to me. So when we're praising God, We start off with God's character. And then secondly, we praise God for his actions. Not just who he is, but what he does. There are all kinds of things that could be listed here. I just listed four. God's actions of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. This is my father's world. We can praise him because he has made all things. Secondly, we can praise God for his deliverance. God has delivered His people in the Old Testament, he delivers Israel out of Egypt and he rescues and redeems and delivers his people from in salvation in the new covenant era. He did as well in the old covenant, but let's keep things simple here. And we can ask God for deliverance in our experience and in our lives. God's actions as well in salvation. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in in our salvation. So we can praise God for salvation. And further, we can praise God and thank God for sustaining us, for the way he cares for us on a daily basis. So these are just a few things, just a few ways to start. But if you are thinking about the topic of prayer and you're thinking, you know, my prayer life is... um, 
not exactly real great, and I struggle to pray for more than 30 seconds before I run out of things to say, here's a little framework for you, and it's the PRAY acronym, P-R-A-Y, Praise, Repentance, Ask, Yield. And now starting with praise, here's some things to praise God for, and then moving on into repentance. Number two, repentance. It starts, it's confession of sin. What does it mean to confess something? Well, to confess means in biblical language, it means to agree with God, to take God's side about the particular thing. You're agreeing with God about your sin. You say, God, I see according to your word that this thing is true or it's, this is how it is. And I broke that and it was wrong. So you're agreeing with God. You're confessing your sin, but there are sins of commission and sins of omission. So sins of things that you did that you shouldn't have done and things that you didn't do that you should have done. So that's a, small framework to think about things. Then also you can use the law to help bring things to mind. When I say the law, I mean the Ten Commandments. Pray and ask God, point three, ask God for conviction of sin. Pray these words found in Psalm 139, which say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So God, show me my sin. Because you and I, we see ourselves like a carnival mirror. And if you haven't been to a carnival recently, let me just tell you, it's a mirror that is very distorted and it is not accurate. In that carnival mirror, you might have a giant head and a tiny little short body or a very long torso and a very short flat head. It's not accurate. It's not how things really are. And That's how we see ourselves by nature. We see ourselves in a very distorted way that's not accurate. And so we need the light of God's word and the Holy Spirit to show us the truth. And so we can ask God to show us, to convict us of our sin, and then to use the word of God to turn the lights on about these things And a good practice is just in this time of confessing sin to confess every known sin. To ask God, show me anything in my life that I need to confess to you. Help me to know the difference between things that are sins and things that are not sins because there's a lot of opinions out there. But show me what you think. And so we repent. Repentance is a changing of the mind that leads to change in the actions. Next point three is asking. Asking. Oftentimes when we think in terms of prayer meetings, we think of people sitting around listing off all their health problems and saying, you know, pray for my grandmother who has arthritis in her hands and it's very difficult for her to open bottles of her medication and makes it difficult for her to plan for her week as she's setting up her pills each week. And it's very difficult and I have to come over and help her and I'd rather not help her. And so please pray for my grandmother's hands to not hurt so that she can take care of herself. and, And we're just in this realm of like, it's not unimportant, but it's not terribly important. But nevertheless, Asking is part of prayer. 
It shouldn't be the only thing, but it is valid and it is part of what we should do when we pray. We should come to God with our needs. God is not annoyed by hearing about our needs, even if the way I just described that prayer request to you makes it sound kind of annoying. God doesn't find it annoying. So you ask him for things that you need. Jesus told his disciples in the Lord's prayer prayer to pray for their daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That is a daily need, that, and that is something that God wants us to ask for. And then this second example I gave is health problems. There's all kinds of things. I don't, don't need to come up with like 50 different examples of needs. I'm sure you have needs that you can put there in the blank. But beyond needs, there are also desires. The Bible tells us that God loves to give good gifts to his children. What is a gift? Well, it's kind of beyond the realm of a necessity. I think about um, when I was a child, I would, my dad would travel sometimes, and whenever he would go somewhere, he would bring back gifts for us. He would bring us um, little trinkets or presents, and it would be like the, the smallest thing to like a t-shirt or whatever. But he would bring back presents for us, and those were things that we thought were really cool. We looked forward to that. The Bible says if, if a father delights to give good gifts to his children, won't God do that? He will. He delights to give his children good gifts. He says he's not going to give you a stone or a scorpion when you have something that you need. So I just listed a couple examples, such as your desire to get into a particular school. You know, you're applying for colleges or you're applying for grad school programs and, and you don't like need to get into a particular, you might think that you do, but the reality is there's 10 different good options, but you really want to be for the rest of your life part of the OSU fan base. And you think that this is a need, but it's really just a desire. But it's okay to ask God that you really want to be a Buckeye forever. That's okay. You want a particular job. You need a job of some kind, but you're asking for a certain one. You don't know God's secret will. You don't know what God really has for you. But it's okay to ask God specifically, God, would you please allow me to work for that company to get this job that I'm applying for today? Desires that you may have for family, whether they are a family you currently have and you're you're wishing uh, for certain things to go a certain kind of way with relatives, or you don't have family and you wish you did. You desire to have children and you don't, or um, you wish your family was a certain way and they're not. These are desires, and God cares about our desires, and it is fine, it is good to bring our desires to him. There is a significant element of trust and faith and even honoring God in bringing your desires to him, because it's telling God that you think that he is not only able, but willing to give you the answer that you're asking for. And so it delights him to give that thing that you want, the same kind of way that If you are at uh, someone's house for dinner and they have cooked a wonderful meal and they give you 
first, uh, a first course of it, and then you ask them for seconds, it delights them to scoop some more food on your plate. They know that you appreciate it, that you want more, that you know that they have more to give and that you're appreciating it and enjoying it and receiving it. So asking, that is part of prayer. And then fourth, we have yielding. Yielding is, is, is a thing that's often kind of overlooked. I've been talking about this a couple times in recent weeks. But yielding is ultimately surrendering. And you see that in Jesus's prayer, in Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, Father, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, please take this away. This is a bad situation, and I would rather not go through this. I would rather not experience this agony, but I surrender to your will. I will give you, I, 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 I will we'll do what you want. We used to sing songs in old-timey churches like, I surrender all. Now I jokingly make fun of it as, I surrender some, I surrender some. Some to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender some. But I think that's a good notion to, to, to pray to God, God, I, I'll give anything to you. I'm not holding anything back. 1 Corinthians 6.20, which we just covered a couple weeks ago, uh, or just went through anyway, uh, you were bought with a price. If God has purchased you with the price of his own son, then what are you holding back? What do you think you have that he doesn't own? Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This concept of surrendering to God is essential for the Christian walk to be recalibrated again and again and again with a proper perspective. To remember that God is God and you're not. And that he has will, a will and, and purposes and plans that you don't know of. You want your life to be going a certain way and it's not and you ask him to do something, you ask him to change your circumstances, but yet at the end of it, you come back and say, God, if it's not your will to relieve this pain, then may you be glorified in it, and I trust that you will be with me in this agony. And so this is an overview of point one, what is prayer? Moving forward, number two, how did they pray? How did they pray? There, we could go for days on this because we're looking at Old Testament examples, New Testament examples, and then examples from history. But Old Testament examples, we have David in the book of Psalms with many, many examples of prayer. This, these psalms are actually songs, and these songs are prayers to God. Put your mind in this place. Imagine that it is the year 1000 BC, and you are David, wandering around in the Judean wilderness, whether you are going through the rocky areas or you are in the grassy areas, not in the wilderness, but a little north of there. 
But what do you have? Well, you have sheep and a rod and a staff and a harp and a whole lot of time. That's, that's your life. Your life is wandering around in the wilderness with your flock of sheep. And so what do you do? Well, you pray and you write songs and you sing praise to God. And that's where these songs that we call the Psalms come from. They are prayers to God. I'm, just, I'm doing this um, read a chapter a day thing uh, and making a little um, post about it on social media because a friend of mine showed up in my inbox and was like, hey, I want you to join this group and we're all going to do this and we're all going to put more scripture on social media because there's not enough Bible on social media. So let's each of us read a chapter a day and then post something from our reading online. And so we went through Proverbs and now we're in Psalms and today was Psalm 28. And there in, I think, verse one, it uses the word rock, that God is a rock. Then what does that mean? Well, it, it means like you're wandering around the Judean wilderness and there's rocks everywhere. There's cliffs. And you look at that rock and you see, okay, it's stable. It's a hiding place. When there's a storm, you can go in, into the caves in the rock. Um, it's not going to wash away. Uh, it's a source of refuge, a place to hide. So remember that as you're reading the Psalms, remember, especially if it says a, a Psalm of David at the top, that this is written by that guy named David and perhaps while he's running from King Saul who's trying to kill him or um, at various stages in his life. But these are prayers. There's also Psalm 51, David's um, prayer of confession of after his sin with Bathsheba. And he comes before God after Samuel confronts him Psalm 51 records that. I uh, also have 1 Chronicles 29, 9 through 20. And I do not know what it says because my footnotes disappeared on this app that I'm using. But it's a prayer of praise to God of some sort. And secondly, after David, we have Solomon. Again, there's every believer in the Old Testament prays, but King Solomon is a key figure. King Solomon prays in 1 Kings 8, 22 through 50, a prayer of praise to God and dedicating the temple. I will pull this up to read a portion of it just because I like it. That's why it's helpful to know the books of the Bible. If you have a print Bible in front of you, you can find stuff. 1 Kings 8, verse 22. I think I have the wrong reference. Maybe it's... Let me try 2 Kings. Now, my, my reference is completely wrong, and I'm not sure what happened because I did 
put it in the footnotes, which are not present here. But nevertheless, Solomon's prayer of dedication in the temple, in the Old Testament, wherever it is, it's not 1 Kings 8, is an incredible prayer to read. You see Solomon praising and extolling God for his greatness. Uh, Next, you see the prayer of King Nebuchadnezzar after, this is an interesting one because he is um, not exactly a Christian. Um, And he has just had his uh, bout of insanity um, that left, that that went away and um, And he prays this prayer of praise to God. So we have Daniel chapter 4. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So if you ever take a systematics, uh, systematics class in like Bible college, seminary, or any sort of institute, they will have, they should have you memorize verses of scripture that support certain doctrines, such as the sovereignty of God. And this is one of those verses that they would have you memorize. That no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? This teaches absolute sovereignty. And King Nebuchadnezzar prays this prayer to God after the Lord has given him his sanity back, after he has been in, in the fields acting like an animal for uh, what a few years, I think. I don't remember the amount of time. But um, then uh, another prayer, since we're in Daniel, is from Daniel chapter 9. In the first year, verse one, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book of the numbers of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Pause for a second. What is he doing? He's praising God. So in our little pray acronym, that's what he's doing. He's starting right there. Next, what does he say? Verse five, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. What is he doing now? He's repenting. Um, O Lord, righteous, uh, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. He goes on, it's 20-some it's verses long. 
But it's helpful to look and see Old Testament prayers, to see examples. How did they pray? We have the book of Psalms. We have specific Psalms that are particularly uh, helpful. We have David's dedication of the temple, uh, David's prayer to God, Solomon's dedication of the temple, Nebuchadnezzar's prayer to God after he regains his sanity, Daniel's prayer of confession of the sins of the people to God. Um, there is prayers of Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 31 Um, verses one through three. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of prison saying, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. The Lord goes to Jeremiah and says, call to me. I want to answer your prayers. There are plenty more, but we'll move on. New Testament. Where would we start but starting with Jesus? We only listed a couple of points here, but we have Jesus, the apostles, and the early church. Uh, Jesus, we have the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, Luke 11. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer starts with our Father, who art in heaven. So that's coming to God, but calling him your, your, your Father. That's a, an astounding thing, to be able to come to the God of all creation and call him your Father. We'll talk about that more later. We also see John 17. Some say that John 17 should be called the Lord's Prayer because that is actually Jesus's prayer, whereas Matthew 6 is when the apostles have come to Jesus and said, will you teach us to pray? So this should be the disciples' prayer and that the Lord's Prayer is John 17. Regardless of what you want to call it, you should familiarize yourself with both. And John 17 is considered by many to be the, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies of scripture, to see the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it also starts out with this, this type of language. Father, I thank you that you have, what does it say? I thank you that you have hidden these things from Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that you that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This this entire chapter is, is staggering. I remember the first time I really started reading the Bible for myself. Um, I was in my late teens. Well, reading the Bible for myself more than just like a psalm a day, a proverb a day, but actually just like reading and rereading and reading and studying and outlining and, and really digging into the Word. And John 17 was just breathtaking to me. Uh, related to prayer, Jesus tells us in John 14. Verse 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is a promise that is 
difficult to wrap your mind around. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Yes, there is this, um, this clause added on to it. He's not just saying, hey, anything you ask, I'm going to do. He says, anything you ask in my name, that the Father would be glorified in the Son, I will do this. But do you know what this means, though? This means you can ask, you can pray prayers in accordance with the word of God, and you have a promise from God that he's going to answer it. These are like, oh, so my mother had used to have this coupon business, and um, outside of the actual coupons that she dealt with, sometimes she would get these coupon books that were, um, long and skinny and about as thick as your pinky. And they had um, these coupons in it that were like long and skinny shapes, sort of like tickets. And you could pull them out. They were all buy one, get one free coupons for like everything you could imagine. If you want to buy one, get one free oil change or uh, tires or food or uh, you know linens for your home or just anything. They had all kinds of different sections in them. And these coupons were like, You could either use them or not use them, but it would be crazy to not use them if you needed the thing. Like if you needed more paper towels and you've got all these coupons for buy one, get one free paper towels and they're going to expire tomorrow, why would you not use them since you're going to need to buy the paper towels anyway? Praying prayers in the name of Jesus in accordance with his word is sort of like that, where you would be foolish not to pray, not to ask him to do the things that he's promised he will do if you ask. Another prayer or an instruction about prayer is Matthew 9, 37, 38. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This might be a contentious point on Twitter, but it is the will of God that laborers would go out into the Lord's harvest. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, we've referenced it already, but here it is, Matthew 26. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus is this model for us, this example in prayer. Further, the apostles demonstrate this as well. It is found in, in every book that Paul wrote. You see a section of prayer in them. I've only referenced one, but in Philippians, Paul says, I thank my God always for you, always in every prayer of mine. Paul has great prayers of gratitude and thankfulness to God for the people that he is writing to. He prays for their growth, for their establishment, for their strength. He prays in all kinds of ways, and we can see this in his epistles for the, the church prayed. In the book of Acts, you see many examples of prayer. In Acts 12, the church has a prayer meeting because Peter has been arrested. And they are, it's, it's really an amusing sto- uh, story. I had a sermon on this from ages ago that someone once said was decent, so maybe I should pull it back out. But the church is praying for Peter to be released from prison 
but they have so little faith that he will be released from prison that when he shows up at the house, having been released from prison, they don't believe that it's actually him and it actually happened. And um, it's just, it's mind-boggling. It's also an incredible picture of this idea of having prayer the size of the grain of, of, of mustard, a mustard seed. It's not a lot of faith. And the early church did not demonstrate a lot of faith either. Nevertheless, they prayed. Acts 12.5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. But apparently they didn't think God was actually going to do it or release him because when it happened, they didn't believe. Then beyond biblical examples, there's examples from history. And I've provided two here, so we have books in front of me I can't forget. So, um, revivals. There have been a number of revivals throughout history. Uh, The New York Prayer Revival of 1857, um, that is one that hits home for a lot of New Yorkers because um, it was the last major legitimate revival that we know of in the U.S., and it was a, a nationwide and it would become a global revival, but it started here in New York. It started down on Fulton Street in the financial district, and it was led by a, a layman, not a, not a pastor, not a preacher of any kind, just a, a regular guy named Jeremiah Lamphere, and he organized to say, hey, let's pray during our lunch break. He passed out all these pamphlets, and I think six people showed up. But nevertheless, they prayed, and they had a structure to it. They had a a starting and stop time and a a plan for this prayer meeting. He passed out more pamphlets, and then the next week, you know, a few more people showed up. And eventually, this this built, and it spread little by little. And eventually, there were um, countless churches across the city holding these noontime prayer meetings. And then it spread from New York to Philadelphia to Chicago to these other major cities in the U.S., And it is said that some one million people were converted to faith in Christ as a result of this noontime prayer meeting. Now, it ended up spreading around the world. And so if you are ever either like looking at my bookshelves or um, looking at a bunch of Banner of Truth books, you'll see there is um, Revival Year Sermons by C.H. Spurgeon, 1858-59. So this New York Prayer Revival of 1857 ends up going global and it hits England the next year and spans into the year beyond that. Some say, and I think it's true, that the Lord used this revival, this spiritual awakening to save a great number of people right before they would be killed in the Civil War. Because this took place right before the Civil War. So, if you would like a book about the New York Prayer Revival of 1857, raise your hand. All right, um, I have four. So, um, let's pick someone over here. Nancy, you can have one. And um, uh, Andrew, can you hand these out for me? I'm not, I'm not going to give you one, but uh, you can hand them out. Um, And besides Nancy, you can pick whoever else gets the other three. (laughs) 
I guess I should riff on this some more so you're not distracted from whatever else I'm about to say. So the church I used to work for, the Food Pantry Church, Manor Community Church, was built in 1855. So it was two years old when the revival took place. The revival was 1857. And um, it was started in a Dutch Reformed church down on Fulton Street. Manor Community Church was a Dutch Reformed church. So this... Revival of 1857 would have certainly, uh, uh, that food pantry church would have been one of the sites that this took place in. If you see churches with the word collegiate in the title, such as Marble Collegiate Church, uh, there's an uber, uber leftist, super woke one down in the East Village. I don't remember its name, but it burned to the ground like four years ago. And um, they got like a ton of insurance money and they're now trying to figure out what they want to do, like if they want to rebuild or... What? But these collegiate churches are the um, the old Dutch Reformed uh, churches. Today they're they're um, basically entirely apostate. But um, the closest to um, not apostate that you would find would be like the RCA Reformed Churches of America. Now, of those, a lot of them are super super far left, but some are not as bad. Some of them are, are Christian churches. Um, but nevertheless, the RCA would be the heir of the Dutch Reformed tradition. Um, and that's where the prayer revival of 1857 was started. But then it spread to all types of churches. And that's the reason why a lot of um, kind of parachurch prayer meetings happen on Wednesdays at noon or Fridays at noon. But they're always these noontime prayer meetings. And that's what that's, it's a reference to that, um, that revival. Um, also, if you didn't get a copy of that book and you want one, you can get them on Sermon Audio. Their Sermon Audio kind of self-published it. Um, I'm sure they would also send you one for free if you send them an email and just say, hey, Andy in New York told me about this book and I was wondering if I could have one. They would say, oh, Andy, how's he doing? Um, so anyway, another one to talk about is George Mueller. George Mueller is um, kind of the unofficial patron saint of prayer. Um, he is a man who ran, uh, he started and ran orphanages in England in the 1800s. And he resolved that he would not make his needs and the needs of the orphanages known to anyone but God. And his biography, which we'll speak of at the very end, in his biography, he has all of these answers to prayer listed. But these would be the types of prayers or the types of answers to prayer where he would sit down at the table with his, you know, a, ta- a table that's as long as from here to the back door with, I don't know, let's say 40 orphans sitting at the table and they have nothing to eat. They have no food. The pantry is empty and there's nothing. There's not, not one bit of food to eat in the house. And he prays and he says something like, Father, we need bread. And we need some milk. We pray that you would provide for us. And we thank you that we will, that you will. And then a knock is on the door while he's in the middle of his prayer. And it's some guy outside in the snow who's like, hey, my horse just died. And I've got this wagon load of milk and I can't go any further. And I was wondering if I could give this to you. This type of thing happened so many times in his life. And I forgot to bring, I have an extra copy of that book as well that I wanted to give to whoever wants it. But um, anyway, 
It's a fascinating, uh, it's called George Mueller of Bristol. Um, and he has just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of these types of stories. But I put this quote in from here to help you see that he's also a Christian man who's praying. And he says, on the ground of our own goodness, we cannot expect to have our prayers answered. But Jesus is worthy, and for his sake, we may have our prayers answered. There is nothing too choice, too good, or too costly, or too great for God to give him. He is worthy. He is the spotless holy child who under all circumstances acted according to the mind of God. And if we trust in him, if we hide in him, if we put him forward and ourselves in the background, which is why we pray in Jesus' name, depend on him and plead his name, we may expect to have our prayers answered. I don't know about you, but just going through this and thinking about some of these things in my mind makes me want to just say, all right, we're just going to pray now. And I'm not, we're not going to have church on Sunday. We're just going to go our separate ways and pray and pray and pray, and then we'll come back together in a couple weeks and see what God did. There have been times in my life where my prayer life was much more significant than it is right now. And there, are, there have been times where I've seen God do incredible things. Back when I was 18, 19 years old, I worked at a summer camp called the Anchorage in North, North Carolina. And I was, I guess I was 18 because I was on operational staff and I, I wasn't like in the service. So I was like a dishwasher guy. And um, during the evening service, they would do chapels like, one in the morning, one at the night, and all the campers are, all the kids are sitting in there listening to preaching. And um, during one of the sessions, I decided I was going to spend the entire session praying for the salvation of souls. And I had a little spot that was secluded. And I spent the entire time praying. I'm not saying this to brag or anything, but just to, to share a word of something that happened. And there were about a hundred campers, like this, this building's about this size as far as seating goes, but it, it you know, fits like a hundred plus staff plus other people. And so I prayed and just begged God, please save kids. And pleading the promises of God and saying, God, you know, Christ died for their sins. Please save them. We know that Christ is honored and glorified in the salvation of the lost. So I'm begging you, please save these kids through Pastor whoever's, you know, Pastor John's preaching. Please save them. And then at the end of the session, the the time where, you know, it's like kind of wrapping up and they did sort of a a reverse altar call, like a, a reverse invitation where it's like, if you want to get saved. If you want to trust in Christ, if you don't, don't come forward. Cause there's like, what are you going to do? Like, but go to the back and someone, a, a counselor, a staff person, a, a sponsor, a, a pastor, whoever, someone will meet you in the back and then take you to a spot where you can sit and talk and discuss the gospel and pray to receive Christ. And that night, 37 kids professed faith in Christ. Their goal for the summer was to see 100 over the whole summer. 
And that night, out of 100 kids in the room, 37 of them professed faith in Christ. So if that isn't a rebuke to me, it's like, wow, why haven't I prayed more? Like, when was the last time I saw someone get saved? It's been a minute. Anyway, let's move forward. Number three, how do, how do we pray? So we talked about people who prayed in the past. How did they pray? But then how do we pray? Well, we have methods. Methods are good. They can be helpful. Um, you can pray in a planned way with a schedule. You can set up things like, well, every Monday I'm going to pray for um, my family. And then you list out the relatives that you want to pray for. And on Tuesday, I'm going to pray for certain churches, such as our church and, you know, my home church, wherever I came from, or my former church, or um, a church I don't like, or whatever. You just list off things in in a, a certain way, and you have a schedule. You can also pray through structures such as P-R-A-Y, Praise, Repent, Ask, Yield. Another acronym that's popular in prayer literature is the ACTS acronym. I don't like ACTS as much as pray because it's not as intuitive to me, but whatever, if you like, that's fine. ACTS stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. See, wasn't that a little less clear than pray? So you have... Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. What is the difference between adoration and thanksgiving? There's a lot of overlap between them, but technically they're different. So adoration is adoring God for who he is, and thanksgiving is thanking him for what he's done. But it's very difficult to keep these things super clear in your mind, so that's why I prefer just praise. And praise includes both adoration and thanksgiving. And then also, what is supplication? Well, to supplicate means to ask. And then confession is similar to repentance. So you have the pray structure, the acts structure, um, and then tools, actual things that you can use to help you in your prayer, such as lists, piece of paper, cards, have a little stack of cards that you, you pray through, like and you, you write them out by hand. Spreadsheets, dates, things that you put like, I'm going to pray for this person's salvation. I'm going to pray for James Lindsay's salvation and then write the date that I started praying for it and then write down every other date that I prayed for him. And then the date that it happens, the date that he gets saved, I'm going to write that down. Which, by the way, pray for his salvation. I mailed him a copy of my book because I accredited him in the book and I was like, here, I want to send you one. But every single chapter in it, apart from the first chapter, is evangelistic. Every chapter in the book has some way of getting to the gospel. So it would be really cool if he read that. And then pray for him because he said, his wife said that if he becomes a Christian, she's going to leave him. Um, uh, Spreadsheets, journals, prayer journals. These are helpful things. Not if you have nosy roommates, but prayer journals are good things. Um, prayer meetings, a prayer meeting, a gathering with other people. That is a tool to help you pray. Small groups, praying in small group, that is a good thing. There are all sorts of these. There's apps for praying that will help you with tracking things and prayer requests and topics and things to pray for. Next, fasting. I thought if I don't talk about fasting right now, someone will ask me about it and I will wish I addressed it because when else would I do it? 
Um, what is fasting? Well, fasting is when you forego eating, typically, in order to focus that time and energy on intense, focused prayer. You don't fast for no reason, but instead you pray and fast for a particular thing, a particular burden which consumes you and replaces or uh, it replaces your desire to eat or just replaces your eating. Maybe you still desire to eat, but you're now going to focus that time and energy on praying. And then what happens is every time your stomach growls or you feel that pain in your body or that weakness in your body from your blood sugar going low, which don't do this if you're diabetic, but when you feel this happen, it reminds you to pray. And because you have a reason for your fasting, it doesn't feel entirely pointless. If you have no reason for your fasting, it's not biblical fasting. Fasting for no set purpose is an exercise in futility. So back in the life of our church, back in 2020, spring of 2020, during COVID, we would fast and pray on Wednesdays for the end of COVID. We did this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then we realized COVID ended, but the lockdown had not ended. And um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that's just, that's just a silly example. Um, the next thing, point five, uh, day with God. So this is a thing that both Donald Whitney and a guy named Jim Berg have written a lot about. Jim Berg's book called Changed into His Image. Uh, it's a thick book. I have probably two extra copies of that I could also give away. Um, and then Don Whitney's book, I think it's in a Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life book. Uh, they talk about this concept of a day with God. So think... Uh, uh, block off four hours, six hours, half a day, a whole day, something like that. Clear your schedule, put your phone on airplane mode, find a quiet, secluded place. It's much easier to do if you are single. Um, you go away. Don't tell people where you're going or just tell them, hey, I'm going to be busy all day. Don't worry about me. I'll be back tonight. And then put your phone on Airplane mode, find a quiet, secluded place, bring a Bible, a journal, and a songbook, a hymnal with you, and then you pray, and you worship, and you read scripture, and you have this focused time of intimacy with God. If you're wondering how you would spend six hours in prayer and worship for God, I can find a picture of the template and send it to you if that's meaningful. So beyond, in methods, there's planned ways to pray and then there's spontaneous prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to obey every impulse to pray. What is this? Well, it's a subjective impression. It's this feeling like I need to pray for Trenton. I'm gonna pray for Trenton right now. And then you do pray for Trenton right now. And then you text him and you say, Trenton, I prayed for you right now. Hope you're doing all right. This has happened to me many times. I've been both on the receiving end of it and the giving end of it where I had this subjective impression that I needed to pray for a certain person or someone else had this subjective impression that they needed to pray for me, not knowing what was happening, not knowing what was going on. But nevertheless, in at least two of those circumstances, I was going through incredibly difficult things at that very moment. 
and then my phone vibrates while someone else is screaming at me on my phone. Someone else, my cousin in this case, Jeremiah texts me and says, hey, I don't know what's going on, but I just felt like I needed to pray for you. And even just that word of encouragement is like enough to get you through and to remind you that God knows and God cares and that God is, is, is helping someone else know and care even if they don't actually know what's going on. So spontaneous prayer is a very good thing and that I believe flows out of planned prayer. And then next is prayer as communion. When you have this relationship with God that is a regular thing, the more you pray, the more you want to pray. The more you pray, the more natural it feels to pray. And so you find yourself praying to God and expressing faith in God throughout the course of your day, throughout the course of your life, in a a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And you do it because you want to. You do it because You feel like it. You do it because you have these desires to pray and the thought comes into your mind to pray. And when you see someone who looks like they're having a very rough decade sitting on the sidewalk and as you're walking by, you pray. You say, God, I pray that you would help that person. Please bless them. You're just going along your way. You're not stopping. You're not making a scene. You're not drawing attention to yourself. This prayer is communion. It's, it's like when you have a best friend and you talk to that person throughout the course of the day. You have a very nice sandwich for lunch. You take a picture of that sandwich and you send it to them. Why? Because you care for them and they care for you and you're in this state of communion with them, this community, this relationship with them. And so you talk to them about anything and everything. And so that is a picture of this type of relationship with God, where you bring anything and everything before him. So we have methods. Secondly, manner. The posture, the the literal physical posture in which we pray. There's walking, standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing, and probably others I haven't thought of. But praying while you're walking is good when you're really tired. And I assume that most of you have Lots of times where you're very tired, you're very sleepy, you, you're, you're struggling. And so if you have a little, little space somewhere, you can pace back and forth, or you can walk around the block, or you can pray while you are um, walking dogs, or walking to work, or walking to the train station, or just doing whatever you're doing, you can walk and pray. Standing and praying, you're standing in a street corner, you're standing on the subway, you can stand and pray, and that helps. Sitting has less distraction because, well, there's not like you're sitting in a chair, you're sitting in your room, you're sitting somewhere. There's a lot less going on. It may be easier to focus, but then kneeling has even greater help in um, focusing because you're not looking around. You're you're perhaps kneeling in front of a chair and, and bent over. But then the problem is if the floor is really hard, it makes your knees hurt or your ankles start to hurt or your legs start to hurt, and then that creates distraction, and that can be a hindrance to prayer. So I could have listed in the the tools for prayer, you could get like a little knee pad uh, from like a mechanic shop or something. You put that on the ground or a pillow or something. Um, And that helps in prayer. Kneeling beside your bed to pray. 
That's a good uh, posture, position. And then last, I put bowing. Bowing, when I say bowing, what I mean is like, you've ever seen either a picture of or just people, uh, Muslims bowing to pray, like face on the floor type bowing. That's what I mean by bowing. Um, I do not say this, I don't say this to encourage you to do anything to be seen by others. If you have roommates or you've got someone who's like sharing... Don't do things to be weird, but out of a natural, genuine expression with the door closed and locked, or when there is a genuine, true heart posture of this type of desperation or weakness or surrender, you fall on your face before God and say, God, I can't do this. I need an intervention. I need your help. This, in my opinion, is one of the more um, desperate Positions and your body situation can actually impact your mental function. For example, this is the reason why it's smart for students to dress up on test days. Because if you're dressed better, you feel a little bit better, you feel a little bit more alert, a little more awake. And if you are bowing, you feel a little more humble, you feel a little more lowly, a little more desperate and dependent. And all of these are good things in prayer. We have manner, and then next we have means. We pray by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The language here in the Greek is often not very clear in our English translations, but what Romans 8.26 is literally saying is that the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. That's what that groanings which are too deep for words, groanings which cannot be uttered, that's when we can't pray. When we are up against a wall and we don't know what to say, we don't know what the solution is, We can trust and rest in the reality that the Spirit is praying for us. Jesus says in John 16 as well, Until now you have received nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. When we pray to God the Father, we are praying in the name of God the Son. And we're doing it by the help of of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for us, but also Jesus intercedes for us. He is our he, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So when we pray, we can come boldly before the throne of grace in order to find mercy. Next, let's talk about motivation. Why are you here? Why did you come? Well, Why did y'all come here tonight? You came because you knew that there was a meeting happening at the church and you were invited and you're supposed to be here and things like that. I was once at an event um, and uh, I talk about it in my book and you should buy my book if you haven't. Um, It was about two blocks away. There's an event happening over at Trinity Baptist Church with a guy named Ed Stetzer who was leading the meeting. And um, he's an interesting fellow. And um, he chose the halftime part of the meeting to call me out in front of the entire room. So he did introductions of 
the whole room until he got to me and then he stopped and made fun of me and then didn't go on to the the rest of the people. Um, so I was discussing this with my friend Travis, who was here this last week and Travis knows him because of uh, things. And he was like, yeah, that's what that was. Um, anyway, one of the things that Ed Stetzer asked was, why are you here? And I said, I'm here because you invited me. I got an email from estetzer at wheaton.edu that said, we're having an event at this place and this time. And I RSVP'd and said, I'd like to come. And your assistant replied and said, great, we'd love to see you. That's why I'm here. I'm here because I was invited. Well, there's something better than a shady meeting happening that we're invited to. We are invited to come to God with our needs to pray to him, to bring all of our burdens to him. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Why do you come? You come because he invited you. Because he invited you, you will never be turned away. Secondly, you come not just because you're invited, but you come because he is your father. And you are his son or daughter, but we'll just use the word son to keep it simple. You are a son of God. This is a concept that is called sonship. And um, some time ago, someone like poisoned the well in my view of this doctrine of sonship. And they're like, that's a bad thing. And it's being overly emphasized. And as I'm preparing for this lesson, I ran like a, like a freight train into this doctrine of sonship because it's like tied in, in, in um, inseparably to the concept of prayer. And I realized that whoever was saying negative things about sonship was just full of it. And that sonship is actually good. And that you need to view yourself as a child of God. You need to view yourself as a son or daughter of God, that God is your father and he actually loves you and wants to hear from you. And because of that relationship, you should bring all of your needs to him. Some of the uh, books I was going through as I prepared for this was uh, going into greater detail about this concept of sonship and, and literally using the human family as this example and saying, look, what does a kid do? A child doesn't have a filter unless they develop it through some sort of like disciplinary action. Your child sees something that they want or they need. What do they do? They ask for it. Mommy, can I have that? Or they, in this stage, they just cry. Why? Because they're hungry or because they need a diaper change. But they're not sitting there thinking, I need food right now, but I'm not going to ask because she probably doesn't care or she's busy. Like that thought does not enter into baby Andrew's mind. Instead, he thinks I'm hungry and she can do something about this. So I'm going to let her know by screaming as loud as I can. And there's something to that that we need to get a hold of in this concept of sonship. And that is, we have needs. We've got problems. God's got solutions. God's got answers. God has mercy to help us. He has resources to give. And if we are holding back our 
needs. We're not coming to him because we have shame. We have weird feelings. We're like, oh, well, I can't talk to him about this. And that's messed up. We shouldn't have these types of fake filters because the reality is God knows already. And so we should bring these things to him. And then further motivation for prayer would be our union with Christ or abiding in Christ. And John 15 talks about this. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The way we do that is primarily through prayer. You get all your doctrines straightened out. You get your salvation assured and, and confident in that, that you are saved and he is, uh, you're a child of God and all these things. Well, then the next thing is this abiding in Christ. Union with Christ is a steadfast, fixed, immovable thing. It is a positional thing. You are in Christ, but abiding in Christ is an action. It is dwelling in the presence of God, particularly in Christ. And we do that through prayer. Let's move quickly because it's 9.06. Hindrances to prayer. Uh, Distractions. You have, um, your mind wanders. You're interrupted. Your phone vibrates. Crazy person screaming at you on the subway. All kinds of interruptions can come up that that mess up your prayer. The doorbell rings. These things stop us from praying. The Bible also tells us that sin is a hindrance to prayer. I put some references there. And in my notes, I wrote both your own sin and other sin can hold you back from praying. It shouldn't, but it does. And that's the reality. What God wants us to do when we sin is to actually come to him all the more. But that's not what we do. Instead of coming to him when we sin, coming to him to confess our sin and to get these things squared away and straightened up, instead we feel, no, I need to get my act together for a while first. I need to be good for three days and then I can come to God in prayer. And that's not what God wants us to do. Instead, he wants us to come to him, to confess our sins to him, to be restored and renewed in our relationship to him. Beyond this, another hindrance to prayer is just literally not praying. What keeps you from praying? I don't know, I just don't. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Trenton, did that hit home? (laughs) But this is what happens. Like, why didn't you? I don't know, I just didn't. And so it's difficult to like get things kick-started. The more you pray, the easier it is to pray. There's some quote about prayer from somebody that says, pray until you pray. Because a lot of your prayer isn't really praying. Beyond this, self-confidence is the ultimate thing. Pride is the ultimate thing that keeps us from praying. We think we can do it. And this self-confidence is actually unbelief. And this unbelief, if extrapolated to its fullest, most raw sense, is the actual basis of just not being a Christian. It's being unsaved. A person who isn't saved, doesn't believe in Jesus, 
They're self-confident in themselves. They have a lot of pride and they don't turn to the God of the Bible to help them, to save them, to forgive them, to give them life. And so these are a range of hindrances to prayer from the simplest thing of distraction and notifications on your phone to, well, maybe you don't pray because you're not even a Christian. Next, fifth and final real point is the effects of prayer. So the effects of prayer are there, there are answers to prayer and those answers are yes, no, and wait. Sometimes when you pray, God answers and says yes. So think with me about the story I told of praying there, God, please save these campers. Please cause them to be born again. And lo and behold, within an hour, 37 kids profess faith in Christ. That's incredible. When that happens, when you get a direct answer to prayer that is a yes, you are overjoyed and you are filled with hope to do it again tomorrow. I'm going to pray again in the same kind of way and see all 37 of these kids get saved again. <laughs> but sometimes God's answer is no. That was a joke, by the way. I don't know if y'all got that, but like, hey, thank you. Were you judging everyone else for not laughing? Or, yeah. <laughs> why did no one laugh? Um, <laughs> we'll go chair by chair and ask each person why they didn't laugh. Um, the other answer, the other effect or answer to prayer is no. When you ask God for a thing and he, it, the answer doesn't come. Or when in some way, shape, or form the answer comes, then the answer is no. And sometimes that goes through or by means of a human giving you that answer. And it is dreadful. You prayed for the good outcome of your medical appointment and the doctor comes walking in and says, I've got bad news. Here's your diagnosis. You have the thing. And it's a very clear answer. The answer is no. God said no. You don't have a good answer, a good outcome from this test. And then lastly, the answer of wait. Or what happens when God does not answer? Sometimes waiting is looking like he's not answering. And that raises questions in your mind. What, what is this all about? What is happening? Will God answer my prayer? Well, he might still answer in the future. But what we know is happening in the meantime for that Christian is that God is using this to shape us and to form us more into the image of Christ. And beyond this, beyond this growth in this sanctification, which we'll discuss in point two, beyond that, we see in the life of Job that there are actually also purposes which may remain hidden to us forever, or at least throughout the entirety of our life. And we're asking God for a certain outcome or a certain deliverance from a, a horrible situation. The answer never comes, but we don't know that there's stuff going on behind the scenes in the spirit realm that honestly has nothing to do with us. But if you knew what God knew, you would do what God has done. And so in all these things, as Job did, Job didn't charge God with sin or wrongdoing against him, even though um, he didn't answer with the answer he wanted. That's where Job says, even though you slay me, even if you kill me, nevertheless, I will trust in you. So what is happening, even in that little example, what you see is formation in Christ happening. So that brings us to point 
B, formation in Christ. We are being grown in humility. Humility is probably the biggest thing because pride prevents us from praying, but prayer cultivates humility and trust and dependence in God. It also cultivates surrender, where you start off by praying, God, I want this thing, and you end praying, God, nevertheless, your will be done. It cultivates faith in us. It is faith in action. It is faith working itself out and made visible. Further, prayer forges holiness within us because it cultivates that relationship between us and God and it makes us more like him. And then it also strengthens us. Prayer for us is a little bit like my son doing his, his ab workouts. Baby Andrew will not just lay still. He's always doing little like fake baby crunches. He's always wiggling around and doing all sorts of things. And what happens is if you see him as he is right now, I think he has a shirt on, but there are a lot of times when he doesn't have a shirt on and you see his back and what you see is like, dude, this kid is ripped. Like his back muscles are so strong. Why is that? Because he's constantly working out. He's constantly moving around. He's constantly crawling and climbing and wiggling. And So when we are constantly praying, our faith is being formed and strengthened more. And so we become strong in our faith. And it may be perhaps that God brings us into trials or hardships for the purpose of causing us to pray, to ask him to deliver us from these hardships, but he has no intention of delivering us from the hardship because what he actually wants is to form faith in us in order to do something in our lives that would not have happened if none of those things took place. One preacher said when he was thrust into a situation he did not want to be in, and he was wrestling with God about the issue, and um, he, the thought came to mind, what if the purpose of all of this is that through this, he would get more of God? So these are some effects of prayer. Beyond this, you have intimacy with God being an effect of prayer. There's a closeness. There's a relationship with God that is built. And what happens over a life of prayer, over, over many experiences, you begin to know God in a relational knowledge sort of way. You know God's person. You know that God is faithful because you can remember and you can point back to things. And then you also remember the works of God. You remember like In the Bible, it's described that he delivers Israel from Egypt. He delivers me from my sin. And he will rescue me in some way from this situation. Or if he doesn't deliver me from it, he will be with me through it. And if it doesn't feel like he's with me through it right now, then just wait. That's the concept of waiting on the Lord, by the way. By the way, while I'm thinking of it before it escapes me, you know the song, uh, Come Thou Come thou fount of every blessing. I think it, it has a line that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. You probably only think of like Ebenezer Scrooge or something, but what is an Ebenezer? Well, some modern versions of the song say, here I raise my sign of mercy. Now, isn't that horrible? This is why I hate the modernizing of, of songs and changing the lyrics and all. But what is an Ebenezer? Well, it is a sign of mercy. It's a marker 
It's a memorial stone. It's a thing that you can look at and you can remember the works of God. And so in Old Testament Israel, God tells them to build monuments, to build uh, Ebenezer. And then when you walk by these statues or these stones, they're all stacked up there and your kids ask you, dad, what's that all about? And then you tell him, well, this is the place that the Lord delivered us from this thing or that thing. And I think that that's very good for us to do as Christians, to remember God's works in our lives. If I were ever on a road trip with any of y'all, I don't really go on road trips much these days or since I started flying, (laughs) but I've driven up and down from Florida to New York enough times I have no interest in ever doing it again. But in Kingsland, Georgia, off of Highway 95, there is, I think it's like exit one in Georgia. Like it's the first exit there on Highway 95 is, is this town called Kingsland, Georgia. And in that town, the Lord did something wonderful in my life. Our car broke down in Kingsland, Georgia, the engine was shot, smoke was coming out of it, uh, the, the pistons are grinding up because the, the oil pump quit and all kinds of problems happened. And the, it was a horribly expensive situation. We ended up having to stay the night with strangers. Well, who were those strangers that took us in? Well, that's a story for another day. But these people, which I was convinced for years weren't even real, that these were like angels that God had sent to provide for us, fed us the best chili I've ever had in my life to this day and then also had the most encouraging, uplifting conversation in the living room. Whenever I drive past Kingsland, Georgia, which hasn't happened in ages, I tell people the story of like, in this place, God did something special in my life when I was 18 years old. So it's important to to build markers, to establish things in your own life to remember the works of God and what he has done. Now, moving on to point six, recommended resources. Um, George Mueller of Bristol, which is a biography of George Mueller. Uh, the works of E.M. Bounds. Uh, Bounds is not reformed, so don't be surprised by that if you are going through it. Um, a Way to Pray by Matthew Henry. I brought this here with me because I intended to read excerpts from it, but I didn't. Um, I have, all, I have an extra copy of this as well that I wanted to give away, but I forgot to bring it with me. Um, so this Way to Pray by Matthew Henry is, is really an incredible resource. Um, for example, here, um, page 118, ask the Lord to enable you to grow in grace every day. Lord, help us retain a firm hold on Christ, our head, by whom the whole body of believers is nourished and knit together through the ligaments and sinews. Sustain us in our spiritual growth. Enable us to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us hold firmly to your way and righteousness and grow stronger and stronger with hands that stay clean. Let our path be as the first gleam of morning light, which shines more and more brightly until the perfect day dawns. Then it has scripture references under it to show what, where those came from. And it's like that on on every page. It has various topics and things. Um, Valley of Vision, which is uh, Puritan prayers, mostly anonymous, I think. I don't think it puts the the names of where they came from. Um, 
I don't think I brought my copy of that with me either. Um, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney, a very helpful book that if you just don't know where to start with how to pray, well, if you observe the way the people who do the scripture reading here do it, they are modeling for you what Don Whitney writes about in his book, A Way to Pray. Um, I wrote up like a one-page guideline and I sent it to Alex Waddell and Alex sends it to everybody whenever they are added to the prayer roster, but it's how to pray scripture. Um, point F, In Light of Eternity, The Life of Leonard Ravenhill by Mac Tomlinson. Uh, Ravenhill also, like Bounds, is not reformed, but nevertheless is widely known for his prayer, prayer life. Uh, unfortunately, there's not, there's not a lot of modern reformed people that really pray very much or write about prayer. It's just not a major thing in reformed circles. Um, there's a book called Piercing Heaven, Prayers of the Puritans by Robert Elmer. That's a modern version that is basically the same concept as Valley of Vision, except it has the names of the people and the sources where it comes from. Uh, a great book called Spurgeon's Prayers. Um, it's literally transcripts of the prayers that he prayed in his messages and sermons there at the Met Tab in London. Taking Hold of God by Joel Beakey, and then Give Him No Rest by Errol Hulse. So these are some recommended resources. Um, And then there's two links at the bottom of your PowerPoint, scripture prayers and Spurgeon quotes on prayers. And you can click on that in your PowerPoint if you so desire. Let's close with prayer and we'll be done. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to be here tonight and to consider prayer. I pray that you would grow us in prayer, that you would Um, shape us and strengthen us, draw us near to you through prayer, that you would help us to come boldly before you, that we would be uh, confident to do so, and that tonight's lesson would serve to help for those purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.